starting last week as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and receives a royal welcome. He receives the kind of parade that you would throw for a victorious king coming back from a long and successful military campaign. But not everybody in town was thrilled to see Jesus. Not everybody was celebrating. Some of the Pharisees opposed him first, but then the rest of the religious leaders appear to have gotten on board as well. And let's be real about one thing. Jesus didn't exactly calm the situation. He didn't exactly relieve the tension in Jerusalem when he got there. He waltzes into town. He prophesies that the city and the temple will fall. He says that the temple is full of robbers, full of bandits, full of rebels against God. He tells a scathing parable about the vineyard, accusing the religious leaders of rebellion against God himself. He doesn't exactly calm things down. If anything, he makes it worse. But considering how much the tension has been building up to this point, considering just how pressurized everything is at this point in the story, I honestly looked at the text this week and I wasn't convinced that I could tell this part of the story in a way that does it justice. So as a result, I asked a friend to come uh, and share his unique perspective of what happens next in the Gospel of Luke. So I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Joseph. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Uh, my name's Joseph. Uh, I appreciate you having me here. And Ben, I just got to say, you're the most handsome person who has ever interviewed me. And I'm, I'm flattered that you would have me here. So, uh, like Ben mentioned, uh, my name is Joseph. Uh, I'm here this morning. Again, thank you for having me. Um, it's a little bit exhausting to travel halfway around the world and 2,000 years in the future. So if I come across as tired, um, I just ask that you bear with me. But uh, Ben thought that it would be good for me to tell you a little bit about myself uh, before we get started. So I'll do that right now. Well, my name is Joseph. Uh, I'm from Arimathea originally. Now, Arimathea is a small town. It's definitely nothing to write home about. And to be honest, in lots of ways, I'm a pretty normal first century Jewish guy. I mean, I, I love God. I love his law. And I really, really hate the Romans, by the way. And I was definitely interested in a guy named Jesus. Now, part of the reason I was so particularly interested in Jesus is because I'm a member of what's called the council in Jerusalem. And being a member of the council, my official title is elder. But again, you can just call me Joseph. We're all friends here. Now, I don't mean to brag, but not everyone gets to be a part of the council. There's only about 70 of us in all. It's a pretty exclusive group. And to become a part of this council in Jerusalem, you have to have a pretty good Jewish pedigree. And it also helps to know some of the right people. Now, if you take my council and you combine it with the chief priests, you combine it with the scribes, all together we make up what's called the Sanhedrin. And as the Sanhedrin, we're basically the political, social, religious court of the Jewish people. Now, as a result of that, we have a lot of power and a lot of pull amongst the Jews, but we do still have to answer to Rome. We're not in complete control. And have I mentioned how much I dislike Rome? Man. Well, thanks for the introduction, Joseph. Uh, we really appreciate it. But 
now that we know a little bit more about you, uh, can you tell us more about Jesus? That's kind of who we're here to talk about. Who was this guy? How did you get to know him? What happened in Jerusalem? Because it didn't really end well, did it? Sure. I'll tell you about Jesus. Now, first things first, I do want to make one thing very clear to everyone before we go any further. I did not hate Jesus. Just so we're all on the same page. I did not hate Jesus. I was looking for the kingdom myself, and I didn't always agree with everything in the Sanhedrin. I didn't always agree with what the rest of the guys had to say. But I was just one of many different voices. And if anything, to be honest, Jesus kind of piqued my curiosity. Now, that being said, even though I was curious, I will admit that Jesus definitely ruffled some feathers. I mean, at first, the guys in the Sanhedrin, we really didn't know what to think about. I mean, we knew he was unique. We knew that he was special. I mean, Herod the Great killed dozens of children in Bethlehem a few decades ago just to try to get rid of Jesus. Not everybody gets that kind of treatment. And we realized that, that this guy was something different. We also knew that Jesus made an appearance in the temple right around when he was 12 years old. But other than that, for the rest of his life, we didn't really hear a whole lot about him. He seems to have kind of flown under the radar. But then when he was around 30 years old, things changed. And I'll tell you what, when Jesus decided to start his ministry around that time, he took our world absolutely by storm. I mean, he taught some crazy stuff that none of us in the Sanhedrin had ever thought of before. Stuff that we had never heard before. And there was something about his teaching that just seemed a little bit different. It just seemed more powerful than what we were used to hearing. And that's not even counting the miracles. The amazing stuff we heard he was doing. The proof was in the pudding with those types of things. So when you combine the teachings, you combine the miracles... There were people around and rumors were starting that this guy was a prophet sent from God. And some people even went so far as saying that he was the Christ. He was the Messiah sent from God who was going to put our people back on top. So naturally, we at the Sanhedrin, just doing our jobs, we began to take notice of this guy. Now, Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of Galilee at the time. Herod Antipas is Herod the Great's son. And Herod Antipas was worried that Jesus was John the Baptist brought back to life. But more than anything, I think Antipas just felt a little bit guilty because he's the one who got John the Baptist killed. But then again, that's just my opinion. Now, of course, the first thing we wanted to do when we heard about Jesus was find out more about him. So we started sending some of the guys just to check the guy out. I guess you could say that we were vetting him in a way. Again, just doing our jobs. We weren't totally opposed to Jesus at this point. We just wanted to get more information. And we were just trying to operate with some healthy level of skepticism. But when we started sending guys to Jesus, started vetting him, things really started to get intense. Things really started to change. We found out that he was eating with sinners. Okay, that's not something you do, but he was eating with sinners. And then we found out that he was offering interpretations of the law that we weren't entirely comfortable with. 
we weren't really sure how that checked out by our standards. And then finally, he started getting into some pretty heated confrontations with some of our guys. Now, you put that all together and you can't blame us for being a little bit concerned, right? That's not unreasonable on our part. And in our defense, it wasn't just us that he was offending. The Pharisees were coming to us and they were complaining. The Sadducees were coming to us and they were all worked up, too. But then things really started getting bad when he entered Jerusalem around the Passover. About that time, he told a parable about a vineyard. And Jesus accused us, the Sanhedrin, of all people, the religious leaders. He accused us of rebelling against God's rule. Now, when he said that, by that point, some of the guys were fed up with him. For a lot of the guys, that parable was the straw that broke the camel's back, and he really burned some bridges, once and for all. When that happened, some of the guys were ready to get him killed right then and there. But again, I didn't hate the guy. I was looking for the kingdom myself, so I wasn't really quite sure. But again, I was just one of many voices. A lot of the guys were ready to kill him at that very moment. And again, I wasn't quite on board with something quite that drastic, but I couldn't really change a whole lot. And on top of that, we really didn't even know how we would make this work logistically. I mean, Jerusalem is a pretty hectic time at Passover. There are all kinds of people visiting from all kinds of different places. And lots of those visitors really, really liked Jesus. Not only was I not sure we should kill him, but I wasn't even sure how we would make it work, how we could even accomplish it, even if we did want to do it. But then as we're sitting there trying to figure all this out, I kid you not, like clockwork, a gift fell in our laps. We couldn't believe it. A guy named Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, he approached us. And Judas told us that for the right price, he would lead us to Jesus under the cover of night so that we could capture him. Now, at this point, I wasn't so sure about this whole plan. The whole thing just seemed kind of slimy to me. I couldn't imagine that God would condone the way we were going about this. And not to mention, I know this might sound crazy, but there was just something off about Judas. There was just something about that guy that seemed strange to me. I didn't like being around him. And I mean, you think about it, betraying Jesus like that? You've got to be a little bit off to pull off that kind of stunt. Now, it all went down on the day of unleavened bread late in the evening. The day of unleavened bread is that time that we celebrate how God freed us from slavery in Egypt. And between you and me, again, I wish he'd do the same thing about Rome. Kind of been waiting for a while. It'd be great if you could kind of part some seas and send some locusts and stuff like that. But anyway. Well, Judas ate dinner with the rest of the disciples. And then Judas came and got us. Now, as we were going to the Garden of Gethsemane, I remember Judas was saying something that kind of indicated that Jesus might have been on to him. But we still went about the plan as usual. So we meet them in the garden. We're ready to arrest Jesus. And that's when things get really crazy. 
One of Jesus' disciples, some redneck fisherman, I think, took out his sword, okay, took out his sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Just chopped it off like butter. I was there when it happened. And when it happened, it was kind of scary, but on the other hand, I kind of chuckled because Malchus, okay, that's the guy who got his ear cut off. I watched Malchus take people's lunches from the break room in the temple. And so I kind of thought Malchus was a jerk anyway. Uh, So when he got his ear cut off, I really wasn't all that worried about it. But the weirdest thing about it all was not Malchus getting his ear cut off. The weirdest thing about that whole evening, that whole time in the Garden of Gethsemane, was that Jesus didn't fight us at all. I mean, yeah, that one disciple took out a sword and hurt Malchus. But Jesus didn't really do anything. He didn't run away. He didn't try to hide. He didn't resist. In fact, he even rebuked that one disciple who tried to defend him. It was bizarre. And I remember him saying, as he looked at us, as we arrested him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Those words really stuck with me. But now that we had Jesus... We all got together to ask him some questions again, just doing our jobs. Now, by this time of night, it was way past my normal bedtime. I was getting tired, but again, we had duties, we had responsibilities, so we all stayed up. And we asked Jesus if he was the Christ. We asked him if he was the son of God, the way some people claimed he was. And he didn't really say much as we asked him these questions, but he did say this. He said, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of of God. The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of God. Those words stuck with me too. Now, when the guys heard that, him say those words, they thought we had enough evidence to accuse him of blasphemy. We thought we had enough evidence to say he was a false prophet who was profaning the name of God. But, you know, looking back on it, he should have just been quiet as we were asking him those questions. I mean, if he had just been quiet, he probably would have been all right, because to be honest, we didn't have that strong of a case against him. Our case had some serious holes in it. But when he was talking like that, when he was saying things like that, maybe it was just late in the night and maybe I was just tired, but it almost came across like he wanted to die. Like he wanted to die. So after he said that, We sent him to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. We sent him to Pilate because we at the Sanhedrin, we could sentence someone to death, but we couldn't actually execute it. No pun intended. Now, of course, we said things that Pilate would be interested in, even things that weren't completely true. We said things that would pique Pilate's interest. We said that Jesus told us not to pay taxes to Rome. We told Pilate that Jesus wanted us to undermine Tiberius, the Roman emperor, Pilate's boss. We even told him that Jesus was just causing general unrest. We thought those things would work because Tiberius is Pilate's boss. Pilate answers to him. One of Pilate's main priorities at a time like Passover in Jerusalem is just don't see any unrest. Don't let any riots happen. We thought that maybe that would get Pilate interested. We thought that he would be interested if we weren't paying our taxes. Like, that would definitely perk his ears up. But 
to be honest, even after all that stuff, Pilate just didn't seem overly interested. I mean, Pilate wasn't Jewish, so he didn't really seem to think that this was his problem to worry about. So in what I thought was kind of a cop-out at the time, Pilate sent us to Herod Antipas. Remember him? Tetrarch of Galilee, son of Herod the Great, the one who killed John the Baptist, that guy. Well, Herod Antipas didn't really do a whole lot either. I mean, he asked him a couple questions. Jesus didn't really say much. They roughed him up a little bit. They made fun of him. They slapped him around a little bit. But then they just sent us right back to Pilate, back to square one. Now, Pilate at this point still wasn't convinced that Jesus really did anything wrong, but we just kept on pressuring him over and over and over. And the biggest thing we did is we got a big crowd all riled up. And the crowd was so riled up that they were even willing to let Barabbas, a known criminal, go free just so that we could get our way with Jesus. And again, the last thing Pilate wanted to do was have to answer to Tiberius, his boss, as to why he let a riot start in Jerusalem at Passover. So after some prodding, after some pressuring, Pilate finally gave in to our request. He gave us the go-ahead to have Jesus executed. And, you know, I look back on that day. I look back on that confrontation with Pilate. And that day, I really lost a lot of respect for Pilate. Because as I look back on it now, Pilate sent a man he considered to be innocent to death. Just for the sake of maintaining order. Just for the sake of keeping the peace. Just because Pilate didn't want to get in trouble with his boss. Now, at this point, if we were in charge, the Jews, but again, we answer to the Romans, we would have just stoned Jesus to death. That was our typical death sentence. That's what we did in Deuteronomy 13 for false prophets, people who commit blasphemy. But for whatever twisted reason, the Romans, again, just gruesome, brutal, barbaric people, for whatever reason, they really, really liked to crucify Folks, now crucifixion was a terrible way to go. I saw lots of them. Crucifixion was a slow death because you typically didn't lose that much blood and all of your vital organs were still intact, even as you hung up there on that cross. And some people, I kid you not, would hang there for days before they died. It was miserable to see something like that happen, to pass a cross on the road. And on top of that, Jesus was crucified next to criminals, even though Pilate knew he wasn't a criminal. They took him out to this mountain. They crucified him next to these two thugs. And I remember seeing the three guys all up on their crosses talking, just having a conversation up there. And I can't really remember what they were saying. It was hard for me to hear because the crowd was mocking Jesus. Now, again, I just kind of watched at this point. And around three in the afternoon, Jesus died. But right before he died, he cried out, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. I already mentioned how some of Jesus's words really stuck with me. These words didn't just stick with me. These words haunted me. I mean, the whole thing was just gruesome to watch. And one of the biggest things that sticks out to me about that day is that at three in the afternoon, it was a whole lot darker 
than we were used to. It looked like it was practically night. And when I thought about that, those words he said about the hour of darkness, those words just kept replaying in my head over and over and over. But then again, the guy died. There's really nothing more to see. So, Joseph, um, what did you do after that? I mean, what do you do after you see an innocent man get crucified? Do you just go get dinner? I mean, what do you do? Do you just go home? No, I didn't go home. Um, To be honest, I felt terrible about the whole thing. I mean, the others knew I wasn't totally on board with this. But again, I couldn't really do anything to stop it. I was just one of many voices. And the way everything just fell into place, as bad as it sounds, as cryptic as it sounds, the whole thing just seemed like it was meant to be. Now, the one thing I could do is this. I didn't want Jesus to just hang there and get eaten by birds like lots of people who get crucified. So I kind of stuck my neck out there. I went to Pilate and I asked Pilate if I could have Jesus's body. Just recently, uh, I had purchased a tomb, recently acquired it. It wasn't being used for anything. And, and I figured the least I could do is give this guy a proper burial. So I went to Pilate, got his body, gave it to his disciples. They took it from there, and we laid him to rest. Well, Joseph, um, I won't keep any more. Uh, I'm sure that's kind of a difficult story to talk about, difficult story to tell, uh, but we really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here with us this morning. So, the man we just talked to. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph didn't know it at the time, but Joseph was just one actor in a drama that was far bigger than anything he even realized. You see, all this stuff that Joseph saw, everything that happened to Jesus, it wasn't just a coincidence. Jesus was not just a victim of circumstance. He wasn't just a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. There were much bigger factors, much bigger forces at work than Joseph or the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem or the rest of the Sanhedrin or the people who mocked him at the cross. Forces much bigger and more powerful than any of them realized were at work. The forces of Satan, the power of darkness, were at work. And it all started with Judas. Remember how Joseph said that something just seemed kind of off about Judas? Something just seemed kind of weird about him? Well, look at Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. And you also think back to Jesus' comments in the Garden of Gethsemane, that comment about the power of darkness. There were forces besides just the Sanhedrin, besides just the opponents of Jesus, besides just a treacherous disciple like Judas at work. The powers of Satan and darkness were active. But the good news is that it wasn't just the power of Satan, just the power of darkness that was active in all of this. In fact, there there were powers and forces far bigger and far stronger than the power of even Satan at work. And all this stuff. 
That, of course, is the purpose of God for salvation. That power was at work as well. Look at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 37. Words of Jesus. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. According to Jesus, all this stuff that's happening to him, dying on the cross between two criminals, that's a fulfillment of prophecy from a long, long time ago. Something that God put in motion. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 42. More words of Jesus as he prays in Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this moment of vulnerability, Jesus says, God, I don't want to die on the cross. Who is fully human and wants to die on a cross? The answer is nobody who's fully human wants to die on a cross. But Jesus also more powerfully wants to obey and follow the will of God, the will of his father. And the will of his father involved a death and involved a death on a cross. And finally, look at Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 34. More words of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, there were forces and powers far greater than anyone there realized. Besides Jesus, of course. These people thought they were just nailing a common criminal to a cross. The Sanhedrin just thought they were getting rid of a little bit of a headache, an eccentric teacher who had annoyed them. But it was something far greater than that. Something far more powerful was at work behind the scenes. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Judas and the rest of Jesus's opponents and the Sanhedrin, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't be held accountable for their actions. They would be. This is one of those examples in Scripture where different forces intersect. They all come together. You have decisions made by people. You have the opposition of Satan to what God wants to do. But you also have the purpose of God. And all three of these things come together. And in some bizarre way that we can't fully wrap our minds around, God accomplishes his purpose through all those things. It doesn't mean they wouldn't be held accountable for their actions. It doesn't mean that their actions weren't intended for evil. But it does mean that God can take those things and he can use them for good and for his will to be accomplished. And in this case, believe it or not, God's purposes for salvation through Jesus, they involved everything we talked about this morning. God's purposes for salvation involved a betrayal by Judas. God's purposes for salvation involved a stacked trial against Jesus under the cover of night. God's purposes for salvation involved an unjust condemnation by Pilate. God's purposes for salvation involved a death at a cross nailed there by the Romans. And God's purposes for salvation involved a burial in a borrowed tomb. But even then, As amazing as all that stuff is, the story's not even over yet. There's one more big event in the Gospel of Luke that we won't get to until next week. We'll get there on Easter. 
But really, it's something that we celebrate every day as followers of Jesus, not just once a year. You see, the story that we're reading doesn't end at Joseph's borrowed tomb. It doesn't end there. If you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, you might have been thinking, you know, I just gave away my tomb that I just bought. Now, where am I going to be buried? I need somewhere to be buried, too. He might have been in the market for another tomb. But here's what Joseph didn't know. Yet. Joseph didn't know that the tomb that he had already owned, the tomb that he gave to Jesus' disciples, that tomb wasn't going to be occupied for long. That if he wanted to, he could use it when he died. Because Jesus wasn't going to stay there. And we'll hear more about that next week as we worship together at Easter. We hope that you've enjoyed this morning. We hope that you'll join us next week for that service as well. And we hope that you leave here knowing that the story of Jesus does not end at a cross. The cross is central. The cross is crucial. But it does not end there. There's a resurrection to look forward to. And we look forward to celebrating that with you next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the story of Jesus that we've been reading for several months now. Um, reading parables, reading teachings, reading miracles, reading confrontations, reading all kinds of stuff. Um, God, we're so grateful that you sent your son, born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he didn't just immediately go to the cross. Uh, he did so much stuff between his birth and his death, even though we tend to focus on those two events more than anything else. Thank you that he taught. Thank you that he prayed. Thank you that he told parables. Thank you that he performed miracles. Thank you that he gave us an example of what it means to love you and seek your will with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Father, thank you that Jesus was willing to die um, for sinners like us. That as he prayed in Gethsemane, he didn't try to save his own skin. He didn't try to run away. He didn't try to hide. He didn't try to defend himself. But he willingly died for people like me and people like those in this room. And Father, I pray that as we leave here this morning, as we begin the week that leads up to Easter, um, I pray that we would just spend time in sober and thoughtful reflection of what it is that Jesus experienced. As we go through each day of the coming week, some of them celebrating different aspects of Jesus' time in Jerusalem. I pray that that would be at the center of our attention. And I pray that as we read your story, as some days this week we grieve or we mourn what Jesus went through, that we would keep in mind that next Sunday we have something to celebrate. And really every day we have something to celebrate. We have a resurrection to celebrate, a tomb that is empty to celebrate. And so, Father, be with us this week as we prepare for this time of year where we remember what your son did for us and how the story ended. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.